Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. خدای زنده و جاودان است و سلطنتش بی زوال و بی پایان اوست که نجات میبخشد و میرهاند و کارهای شگفتانگیز در آسمان و زمین انجام میدهد اوست که دانیال را از چنگ شیران نجات داد Good morning, South Valley. How's everybody doing today? All right. I love it. I love it. My name is Ricky Hemi. Thanks for worshiping with us today in person. Thanks of you for joining us online. Hey, today we have 49 verses to cover in one single sermon. All right. You guys ready for this? 49 verses. If you guys have Bibles or whatever you use, turn to Daniel chapter 2. It's a very important chapter in the book of Daniel. It even talks about the return of Jesus. And so my prayer is that we would get through this sermon before he actually does come back. Okay? We got a lot to cover, so we got to, we're going to pray. We're going to jump straight into this thing today, and I'm really excited about this, this passage. I'm a little nervous about this passage because it has some prophecy, predictive prophecy, but I feel like this passage is, is just so relevant for what we're experiencing today in our culture, in our society. So let's pray, and let's jump into things. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for an amazing time of worship. I thank you for John and his team. I thank you for the energy and excitement that they bring, the passion they have for you. And I thank you for the passion of this church. Yesterday morning as we gathered with men, about 65 men on this campus, it was an amazing time to see men with passion for you, raising their voices to you. We see that in the story of Daniel. Daniel and his friends as teenagers proclaiming that they are passionate about the God of gods, the King of kings, Yahweh, you, Lord, the one who sits on the throne. I pray that you'd remind us today that you are in charge, that you are sovereign, and that you are good. You love us. You pursue us. Pursue us now in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. So we are in a new sermon series titled Life in the Den. I want to give you a quick recap. Last couple weeks, we learned that in 605 BC, Daniel and a few of his friends, teenagers, were kidnapped and brought back to a land called Babylon. So that happened in 605 BC. But then after that, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and his friends continued to attack and attack Jerusalem until it finally fell. They burnt the temple to the ground. And when he besieged Jerusalem, these are historical events we're talking about, right? Historical events. When he besieged Jerusalem, he turned it into a vassal state. He forced the, 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 everybody there into exile, and he made them walk 700 miles to Babylon, located in modern-day Iraq. And once in Babylon, the youths in Nebuchadnezzar's court were reprogrammed. 
Their names were changed from names that honor God to names that honor Satan. They were forced to go through a three-year government-mandated education program to learn how to be a Babylonian, and they were even castrated, we talked about. Yeah, really bad day, really tough stuff. And all of it was done to make one statement, and it's this, your life belongs to Babylon. Everything about you now is about Babylon, and the only wishes and desires and goals you're allowed to have in your life are the goals and wishes and desires of your king. Well, Daniel and his friends, not only did they survive the the, the journey to Babylon and the initiation process in Babylon, but once they were there, they succeeded in everything they put their hand to. We learned last week they were 10 times better than everybody else. Why? Because they stood on their convictions. Can I get an amen? They stood on their convictions. They trusted God. God came through, and because of it, they stood out above the rest 10 times better than everybody else. Well, in today's passage, Daniel and his friends are about to face their biggest threat yet. They're going to face the terror of a frightened and insomniac king. Today's message is titled, Praying in Babylon, praying in Babylon, Daniel chapter 2. And as I said, we're going to cover 49 verses. And if you don't think that's a lot, just take a peek at your chapter 2. You're going to see, that's a lot of verses, 49 verses. Here's a breakdown of, of these verses so it's a little easier to digest. We're going to talk first about the problem, next about the prayer, then the praise, then the prophecy, then the promotion. So let's start. And and the reason why I'm not afraid to cover long chapters of scripture and and the reason why I don't go over even controversial verses in scripture, like I don't avoid them, is because I believe that all God's word is inerrant. And I believe it takes the whole Bible to be a whole Christian. And so we are going to look at every verse in the Bible, even when those verses are hard or even when those chapters are are long. So that's my commitment to you at this church. So let's start with first the problem. This is what it says, Daniel uh, chapter 2. It says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in, and they stood before the king, and the king said, To them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. So the Bible here, it shifts languages from Hebrew to Aramaic. Just so you guys know, there's a little section in your Old Testament in Aramaic. This is that section. It says, then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll show the interpretation. Tell us what it is, and then we'll interpret it for you. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. You're not going to like it. If you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb and your house shall be laid in ruins. Okay, that's his go-to punishment. I don't know what's wrong with this guy, but he's just like waiting to tear someone limb from limb. Like he's just wait, like just test me. Please just test me today. He does it over and over. He was a bloodthirsty king. In, in your history books, you learn about Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king of Babylon. We talk about uh, the seven wonders of the ancient world, like the pyramids, right? One of those wonders was the, the hanging gardens in Babylon. You know who built the hanging gardens in Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so this, is, this, is, uh, this guy's a big deal. 
But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and then we'll show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you don't make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, I, therefore tell me the dream and I'll know that you can show me its interpretation. He didn't trust his own people. He didn't trust his own magicians and enchanters and wise men. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. This is an important phrase. There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. That is the problem. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a nightmare. Now, I think we all know what it's like to have nightmares. You guys ever have nightmares? When was the last time you had a nightmare? I don't know if you remember. Nightmares are not fun. We all have nightmares on occasion. I don't know if you know this, but each of us dreams about three times a night. Uh, That's what scientists say, about three times a night. We all dream every night, actually. Every one of us dreams each night. Now, sometimes we remember our dreams. Other times we can't recall those dreams. But nightmares are those dreams we tend to remember the most because they are usually pretty vivid. My kids, on occasion, I have a seven-year-old and a six-year-old, they occasionally have nightmares. And I usually know when my kids are going to have a bad dream, okay? John has a bad dream just about every time he watches something scary, okay? John is not afraid to jump a motorcycle or a bicycle or or punch somebody or fight somebody or any, any of that stuff. But you show him a monster on, even a cartoon monster, and he's going to sneak in your room in the middle of the night and stand over your bed like a little leprechaun. (laughs) And then I have nightmares because of him. I don't know if your kids, why do our kids do that to us? Please do not stand over my bed and stare at me until I wake up. You might get punched on accident. (laughs) I don't like leprechauns. Please don't do that to me. Blake, so Blake, she has nightmares on occasion too, and, and her nightmares are when she's overly tired, okay? When Blake is overly tired, I just know it, I could sense it, she's going to have a nightmare. Johnny's nightmares are about monsters and the Grinch. Why the Grinch? I don't know. But the Grinch is always coming to get him. And I don't know if it's coming to get him or his toys, I'm not totally sure, but... Blake, her nightmares are different. Okay, she's not concerned about monsters. Her nightmares are always about her showing up to school with her hair messed up or mismatched clothes or lacking clothes. And she's like so distraught. So you can see how different my kids are and it reveals a lot about, the, about how they are. I have occasional nightmares. I have one of my recurring nightmares is that I come up here onto, into this pulpit and I look down and I have nothing to say to all of you here. It is frightening. Sometimes, most of the time, I'm wearing my clothes in that dream. <laughs> most of the time. You would have nightmares too. So, Nebuchadnezzar had a nightmare. 
But he was aware of the fact that this wasn't a usual dream. This wasn't a normal nightmare. His, his brain wasn't just randomly firing in the middle of the night. He could sense he was receiving a divine message. And because of it, his spirit was troubled. The Hebrew word here is pa'am, which means to beat something persistently. This dream, it haunted him day and night. This man was haunted by this dream. And this is a big deal because the context of this passage is that by the time Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, he was actually secure on his throne. All his enemies had been subdued. He ruled the world, yet he couldn't sleep. He was suffering from royal insomnia. Nebuchadnezzar conquered dynasties, but he couldn't conquer his own dreams. One commentator says it this way. Uh, Jeff King says, As is so often the case, the cares of the day also become the cares of the night. Nebuchadnezzar did a thing which no believer in God should ever dream of doing. Nebuchadnezzar took his problems to bed with him. I don't know if you've ever done that before. You've allowed the weightiness of your day, the weightiness of your life, the problems that you're facing to be with you in the night. It's the worst thing that you could possibly do, but it was the only thing Nebuchadnezzar could do because he, his only hope was himself. He wasn't worshiping a God who was in control and in charge and sovereign over the nations. Nebuchadnezzar believed his only hope, his only goal in life was for him to build his own kingdom. And if he couldn't build his own kingdom, no one else would do it for him. And so he was left up at night. He was an insomniac going over and over with this dream. He was frightened and scared to death. God flicked a little dream into his mind. And this king that ruled the world all of a sudden was scared half to death. So what did he do? It says, Then the king commanded the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to be summoned to the king and to tell the king his dream. So they came in and they stood before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded to his nightmare by calling in his team of advisors. And his cabinet was, com was comprised of four different groups. There were magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. Okay? And wise men, Daniel and his friends, would have been part of that group of wise men, those categories of wise men that Nebuchadnezzar would lean into during times like this. And he asked his team to do something impossible. He said, I want you to not just tell me the interpretation of my dream. I want you to actually tell me what I dreamed so that I can trust that you're not lying to me about the interpretation. I want to make sure, I'm, I'm nervous about this thing. I want to make sure that what you tell me is actually true. And so here's where we get the first clue that Babylon really wasn't as great as it appeared. You see, although Babylon represents the height of human glory and the personification of everything that this world is chasing, okay, in Babylon there was wealth, there was power, there was opulence, there were harems, there was sex galore. And I'm not trying to be insensitive here, I'm just saying these are some of the things that the world is chasing today. In Babylon, they had all of this military might, 
power, knowledge, everything your flesh could possibly want. Babylon was the epitome of chasing after everything that this world is about and for and desires in its flesh. But still, when Nebuchadnezzar had it all, he owned it all, one little dream flicked into his mind, sent him into a frenzy. That's because God can disrupt an entire kingdom with just a dream. God's enemies believe that they're untouchable. God's enemies believe that they're in control. But the reality is, is that God is in control of who is in control. Can I get an amen? God is in control of who is in control. And here was a moment where Nebuchadnezzar was about to encounter the living God. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the man, the real deal. Nobody could touch him. But God reveals him, you are actually just an ant. You think you're a God, you're just an ant. Now, I want to pause here for a second. Did you know that predicting the future is a $2 billion per year industry in the United States, $2 billion a year, from fortune cookies to horoscopes to tarot card readings, Americans, we are obsessed with discovering the future, except that there's a major problem with all of this, and it's this. The future is unknown to man. Doesn't matter how much you pay somebody. It doesn't matter how spiritual they look. It doesn't matter if they're wearing a cool dress with whatever on the, the symbols on it when they show you some cards, the future is unknown to man. If you could tell the future, if anybody could tell the future, that person would be a trillionaire, their children would be trillionaires, every person after them in their family would be trillionaires. Human beings, though, cannot tell the future. Some gurus and mystics will claim that they can predict the future, and maybe at times they could make a good guess here or there, but they're all charlatans, every one of them. If somebody tells you they can tell you their future, they're a charlatan because only God knows the future. Human beings don't know the future. And just, and just to test this out, I, I didn't, you know, try this out today. If you think you could predict what's coming ahead of you, when you get on the 198 this week, put on a blindfold for about a mile and let me know what happens. Actually, don't do that, okay? But... We can't even predict what's a mile in front of us. What makes us think we could predict a year, five years, a hundred years? What you're going to see, though, in this passage is that God can predict it. Because God doesn't just predict the future. He performs the future. What we're going to see in this passage today is that only God knows what's ahead. Only God knows what's ahead. And what's cool about God is that on occasion, he lets us know exactly what's going to happen. If you go back one slide, he lets us know exactly what is going to happen. We call this in scripture, we call this predictive prophecy. Sometimes God gives us a glimpse of what is ahead. He tells us in advance events that are going to happen. And and some of us, we hear that and we're like, oh, that's pretty cool. No, this is a miracle. I don't know if you guys are aware of this or not. The Bible is the only book on the planet that makes hundreds and thousands of predictions about the future 
And every one of those predictions has come true. That is the only book on the planet that has made predictions about the future and every single prediction has become true. Now, some of us were like, oh, no, there's other books out there that, you know, predict things. No, there's not. And actually, if there is one out there that does make a prediction, some kind of mystic religion that does, not a single prediction comes true. And if one does come true, it's by chance that it comes true. And if you want to test it, ask them to make another prediction, and that next one will not come true. The Bible is the only book on the planet that makes predictive prophecy, and the prophecies actually happen. Now, I'll just give you a quarter of the Bible. One quarter of the Bible is predictive prophecy. A quarter of it. Here's just a few. I don't know if you know this. There are over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Bible. Over 300 prophecies. Ranging from thousands of years before he came to 400 years before he came. They prophesied that he'd be born of a virgin, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, that he'd be of the tribe of Judah, that he would do miracles, that he'd begin his ministry in Galilee, that he'd come riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. All these prophecies go on and on and on and on, that he would be pierced, his hands and his feet. And guess what? Thousands of years, hundreds of years before it happened, it is recorded in the text of Scripture. And because it's recorded in the text of Scripture, and the Bible is not just a man-made book, it is the inerrant, inspired Word of God, everything that was recorded actually came to be. That's why you can believe the Bible. You can believe the Bible because it's true. And if you ever want to test its truth, open up those pages, study it, and look at the historical events that it talks about. Well, in today's passage, it's going to talk about even crazier historical events because it's going to talk about kingdoms that will rise and will fall. Well, so what did, what did uh, uh, Daniel do when he was asked to do, when he heard that these magicians were asked to do the impossible, that his friends were going to die if they didn't do the impossible. What did Daniel do? What was his response? That leads to section number two of this passage. There wasn't just a problem, but when Daniel saw the problem, he knew that he couldn't tell the future, but he worshiped a God who could. So what did he do? He prayed. Look at what it says. Daniel 2, because of this, the king was angry because the other people couldn't answer the question. And he was furious. And he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. This would include Daniel and his friends. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree the king made so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in, and he requested that the king appoint him a time that he could stand uh, that might show the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his buddies, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Daniel and his friends responded with prayer. When Daniel was faced 
with an impossible situation. What did he do? His first response? Prayer. If you ever find yourself in the middle of a crisis, there are two things that you absolutely need in the middle of a crisis. Number one is people. What did he do? He called his buddies, right? Number one, if you're in a crisis, you need people. Number two, you know what you need? Prayer. Prayer. Prayer is where we enter into the throne room of God and the the one who can do the impossible invades earth, intervenes, and does what only he can do. If you are facing a crisis today, pray. Talk to your friends and pray. And so here's a challenge for you, South Valley, a challenge just in application. Whatever you're going through today, bring it to the Lord in prayer. I don't care how big it is or how small it is. Bring it to the Lord in prayer. Whatever it is, bring it to him in prayer. Even if it's impossible. Daniel prayed and God did something impossible. Daniel get, God gave Daniel a vision. A a vision of the future, a vision of what was actually in someone else's head, in Nebuchadnezzar's head. God did something impossible. I want to encourage you, church, and I'm I'm trying to take this to heart through this, this sermon as well, to not be afraid to pray specific, bold, impossible prayers. Specific prayers. Asking God to do what only God can do. Corey Ten Boom has a great quote on prayer. She says, the wonderful thing about praying is that you leave a world of not being able to do something and you enter into God's realm where everything is possible. He specializes in the impossible. Nothing's too great for his almighty power. Nothing is too small for his love. Do you guys believe that today? <laughs> Daniel and his friends, while everybody else was freaking out, And looking to the stars for answers, Daniel and his friends went to the one who made the stars. Earth is his footstool. The heavens are his throne. They knew that if something was going to happen, something was going to change, they needed to talk to God first. So they prayed. God answered, leading to section number three, the praise How did Daniel and his friends respond when God answered the praise? It says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets them up. Did you hear that? That's how big he is. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, God of my fathers, I'm going to give thanks and praise. For you've given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you've made known to us the king's Matter. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. 
Bring me in before the king, and I'll show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I, have found, I found someone among the exiles from Judah, a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there's a God in heaven. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Notice Daniel's character in this passage. The first thing he did upon receiving the vision of what God was putting in Nebuchadnezzar's head, the first thing he did before returning to the king's court was he paused and he prayed. Or he paused, he prayed, and he, he praised God. Daniel knelt before the king of kings in worship so that he could stand with confidence before the king of Babylon. That's what we know about God. When we praise him and we worship him and we put him first and we acknowledge his throne and his power and his glory and his might, then all of a sudden every other throne and power and boss and authority that we come into contact with looks like this. Because we've, sent our, we've spent our time in the presence of the God of heaven. The God whose who's, heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. Daniel spent time in God's presence, in front of God's throne, worshiping him so that he could stand in the presence of an evil king. And he got to stand there without any fear because he worshiped a bigger king than King Nebuchadnezzar. Also, I want you to notice, he gave God the credit. You see, this was Daniel's opportunity to shine. This was Daniel's opportunity to come in before the king, this young exile, and be like, hey, I got the message for you. I'm awesome. I know it. I think I'd want, I I want a, a, you know, a yellow camel and a red camel. I've always wanted one of those if you're going to reward me. I want some better vegetables. I want a nice new dress. I, I want to, like he could have, made that moment all about him. He could have walked into the king's court, head held high, full of pride, full of arrogance, and just soaked it up and been like, hey, all eyes on me, this is my moment to shine. But you know what he does? King, what you asked, no man can do, but God can do it. I'm not wiser, I'm not better than any other person in this kingdom. I just worship a better God. I worship the varsity God. You see, all these, they had their gods. They had their long list of gods. But every god that they were leaning into they, they could do nothing. They could do absolutely nothing. Daniel worshiped the God of heaven. And this is a reminder, not only when we face a trial do we pray first, but we also, number two, is we praise first. <laughs> praise first. Don't just pray first. 
Praise first. When God does something awesome in your life, praise him. You see, this is what's so crazy about prayer. Oftentimes we bring things to God in prayer. We say, God, if you'll do this, then I'm going to do this. How many times do we do what we say we're going to do? God, if you just come through and you show up and you make yourself known and you change the circumstance, I'm going to be so grateful. I'm going to be so excited. I'm going to praise you. And then God shows up and he changes your circumstances. And then what do you forget to do? Praise him. I respect and admire people who praise God first. They, they put God first in everything. They, they show up to church on Sundays, not because they're super religious. They show up to church on Sundays because they want to start their week by praising God first. They want to put God first in everything that they do in their life. Because they know when they praise God first and they put God first, then all of a sudden Everything begins to change in their marriage, in their family, the way they parent, within their job. They put God first. They praise God first. And everything else comes that they are hoping will come. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus says, right? And everything else will be added to you. Pray. Praise. So he praised God. And then he went and he delivered the prophecy, the next section, the prophecy. All right, here we go. Another long section. Let's do this thing. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. The image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, the chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, his feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out, by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff on the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image because became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now I'm going to tell you the interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all kings, all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they, shall, they will not hold together, just as iron doesn't mix with clay. And in those days, the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. 
nor shall there be uh, any kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut out from a mountain not made by human hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. In his dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue. He saw a colossal image of a man. Its gargantuan size was dreadful in appearance. And it reduced the king to a state of utter terror. And the image was of a man because it represented history's inflated view of themselves. It it, it represented history's inflated sense of accomplishment. And in this statue, we saw a representation of five different kingdoms followed by a heavenly, miraculous kingdom. And this statue was broken down into five sections made of different materials. And all of them kind of descending into to, from fabulous materials to a little more earthy materials. Not as, not as beautiful, but, but stronger. And so what was happening in this vision of this statue made of five different parts is that each section represented an empire of the world that would one day, that would continue to rule over Israel in succession. Now I want to pause here for a second. We're going to look really quickly at this, at some of the history here. We're not going to go too deep in it because we don't have time. But what I want you to know here is this. God promised that these different kingdoms would rule and reign on the earth starting from 605 BC all the way to 395 AD and then into the future. And guess what happened? He said it would happen and it happened. Starting with Babylon. Starting with Babylon, he looks at King Nebuchadnezzar and he says, O king, you, you represent the head of gold. You're beautiful, you're marvelous, you're powerful, you're magnificent. Other historians from the time period of Babylon refer to Babylon as the city of gold. Even Isaiah, when Isaiah talks about Babylon, he talks about it as covered in gold. It is a city of gold. And he said, you are amazing, you are glorious. And and, and when it comes to the Gentile kingdoms, there is no kingdom like yours. But guess what? A kingdom's coming after you that's going to take over. They're not going to be as beautiful as you. They're going to be silver, but they're going to be stronger than you. And this kingdom, this next kingdom, represents the Medo-Persian Empire. This kingdom of silver has two arms, which represent two different groups coming together as one, the Medes and the Persians. And so what we read in history and what we're even going to see in the book of Daniel is that following the Babylonian Empire comes the Medo-Persian Empire. They were marvelous, they were magnificent, and they were powerful, but they weren't as glorious as Nebuchadnezzar. But following the Medo-Persian Empire is an empire called the Greeks, not the Creeks. I don't know why it says Creek here. We messed up. The Greeks, the Greek Empire. Now, this is, this is so you got to think here, the Persians, I don't know if you guys remember this, like uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, like 300 stuff, right? Spartan stuff. Anybody? We are Sparta. Anybody? Anybody? Okay. It's because these guys were invading the Greek city-states. And eventually the Greek city-states got fed up with the Persians. 
And a guy named Alexander the Great, one of the greatest warriors and kings in all of history, he went and he took over the Persian Empire. And, and, and Alexander the Great's kingdom is represented by brass. And what's so interesting about Alexander the Great and his kingdom is that when he would go from town to town conquering the world and making every place like a, a Greek city-state and turning the world into a version of, of Greece, his, his soldiers were clothed in, in breastplates of bronze, helmets of bronze, shields and swords made of bronze. So Nebuchadnezzar, the Medo-Persian Empire, then Greece, the, the Bronze Kingdom. Alexander the Great conquers the world. He's so bummed at the end of conquering the world that we read in, that he actually cries because he's like, there's nothing else left for me to conquer. And then he dies at a young age. But following Greece, think Athens, think, think the Pantheon, think, think all its magnificence and beauty. Following them came the Roman legions, the iron legions of Rome. Rome's soldiers were called the iron legions. They, they came in with, with a rod of iron, with shields of iron, weapons of iron, and they, they, they crushed every kingdom in their path. And they became, <coughs> though less glorious than all of these kingdoms, they became bigger and, and wider and broader than every other kingdom before them. So that's some of the history. Now, some of you are like, this is boring. I didn't sign up for history. <clears throat> what I want you to see, God predicted kingdoms, kings, that would rise up and fall down, and it actually happened. You're not going to get that on the news. You're not going to get that on social media. You're not going to get that in the Quran. You're not going to get that in the writings of Buddha. You are not going to get that anywhere else on the planet. Predicting hundreds of years before it even happened. Nations rising up and falling. Rising up and falling. You know what's crazy about Daniel? So I'm going to break Daniel down. This is a little peek into the future. I'm going to break Daniel down into two seasons. All right, We're in season one of Daniel. Season number two is the second half of the book of Daniel, and the second half is all prophecy about the future. I was debating going into Daniel's the second half because I'm like, I don't know if we're really ready for this. I don't know if people are really, you know, going to like all this history stuff. If they, but, but you guys have been hanging with me, and so, I'm, so thank you. Thank you for that. I love it. So we're going to do Daniel season two after summer. After summer, yeah. So. And you're going to hear, you're not going to just hear about these kingdoms, but you're going to get a description of some of these rulers like Alexander the Great. Daniel predicted Alexander the Great long before there was anybody called Alexander the Great. But here's the crazy thing I want you to see in all of this. Daniel predicted, God showed Daniel a vision of all of what was going to happen in Nebuchadnezzar of all these different kingdoms. And there's still this, this kingdom down here. It's an unknown Roman empire Partly clay, partly iron, ten, 10 rulers. I don't know what to say about that yet. Um, I, I'm not even going to try today. But he promised that during the time of this iron kingdom, the iron legions of Rome, a miracle would happen. A stone cut, not by human hands, would be thrust from the heavens and would begin to destroy the kingdoms of earth and would set up a throne and a kingdom 
of which there would be no end. He promised that in this kingdom, somebody would come, and we get a better glimpse of this later in Daniel, called the Son of Man, would come and receive the kingdom of God. What do we know about when Jesus was born? Under what empire was Jesus Christ born? The Roman Empire. Jesus was born under the Roman Empire, forced to go to Bethlehem because of a census that Caesar required within the Roman Empire. He was then condemned as a criminal within the Roman Empire. He was nailed to the cross of a Roman cross. He was buried in the tomb, and the tomb was closed, and a Roman insignia ring would have been placed on that tomb. It was guarded by Roman soldiers, and Jesus rose from the grave in the, in the midst of the greatest kingdom on earth. Jesus is the rock that would crush all the nations and one day set up a kingdom that would know no end. You know what's so crazy about this? The Bible talks about the fact that Jesus in his first coming would come at the fullness of time, at just the right time. One thing that we know about the Roman Empire is that there's something called the Pax Romana. You guys remember that in history books? Peace in Rome. You see, Jesus came in a time where there was relative peace. You see, in all of these other kingdoms, there was constant war. Everybody's, everybody was being attacked. Every, nobody was actually safe. But Rome came and they had this long period of peace called the Pax Romana. And that's when they built roads. That's when they, they, they you know, built all the stuff that you, you go and see now in Rome. Um, there, it was a time of relative peace. The whole world had one language. They were, they were speaking Greek. That's why the New Testament is written in Greek, okay? Alexander the Great introduced Greek to the whole world, Hellenized the world, we read in, in our history books. The whole world is speaking one language. There are roads to travel to every nation. There's peace for the first time in, in centuries, and that is the context that Jesus is born in. Why? Because the whole world, all of a sudden, has access at just the right time to the message of the gospel. You see, the, 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 the stone that came and crushed these kingdoms and grew into a mountain, that happened the moment Jesus came. Jesus came, he introduced a kingdom, he started to build that kingdom, and guess what? You and I, were still building that kingdom today. It's called the church. That church is growing into a mountain until one day Jesus returns and consummates the kingdom of heaven and rules. And he will rule on a throne physically, in person. We will see him and behold him just as they were beholding Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's day. That is the promise of Daniel in this passage. And what's so crazy about the ministry of Jesus during the time of Rome is that what happened in Rome 2,000 years ago spread across the world so rapidly that you and I are talking about it today in a little town called Lemoore. And God promised it. He promised this kingdom. He promised that kingdom. He promised this kingdom. He promised that kingdom. He's promising this kingdom, whatever that is. And then he promised the kingdom of God. You know why you can trust that Jesus is going to come back and make all things right. Because every other thing that God promised, he did. That's why you can trust it. That's why you can believe it. Church, we are living in a crazy kingdom right now. And it feels like the world is shaking. 
But the kingdom of God is moving. And Jesus is inviting you to be a part of what he wants to do in this world before he comes back in glory. You may feel at times like, man, what can the church do in light of all of these things that are coming our way? What can the church do, you know, when I look at other nations and like, what, what, what are we going to even do? We can't make an impact. It's too far gone. Things are too hard. There's, there's way harder times that we're living in now than we lived back then and not even close. Jesus wants to use you. He came to save you, to redeem you, to change you from the inside out, to fill you with his Holy Spirit, to send you back out so that when he comes, the, the, the stone would grow into a mountain covering the whole earth. That's a great commission, right? Go into where? All the what? All the nations. Every ethnicity proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus promised that he would build his church and he's going to build his church until the day he comes back. And he is coming back and it may even be soon. We don't know. But Jesus promised it and Jesus does what Jesus promises. Finally, the promotion. The promotion. What's it say? Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, paid homage to Daniel. And commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God. He's the God of all the gods and Lord of all the kings and revealer of mysteries. For you've been able to reveal this, this mystery to me. Then the king gave, gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the, all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a re request of the king and he appointed his, his buddies Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. The story ends with a promotion. It ends with a promotion because Daniel brought to Nebuchadnezzar the real God of heaven. And when Nebuchadnezzar saw the real God of heaven and all the systems that he trusted in that failed him when he needed it most, he realized, you know what? I may not know this God, but I at least want to know his servant, Daniel. And so Daniel served in the king's court. The greatest king on earth was so in awe of a slave and his ability to reveal secrets in a dream that he fell on his knees. So I want to close really quickly with three ways you can apply today's message. Three ways. I hope you guys know today that since God is awake, you can sleep. You don't need to be like Nebuchadnezzar, staying up all night long worried about your problems. You can let it go. You don't need to be about like Nebuchadnezzar, worried about what's happening with the economy. I know it's frightening at times. You can let it go. You don't need to beat yourself up worrying about your kids. Pray first, then praise, then let it go. God is in control. Since God is awake, you can sleep. Number two, pray bold, specific prayers. When you pray, don't just say, God, do something cool. What kind of cool thing do you want him to do? Pray it and pray it and pray it and watch for him to respond. And don't forget to praise him when he does. And number three, when you think all is lost, think again.
Daniel and his friends thought all was lost. They were in a terrible kingdom under a terrible king. But they were reminded in the midst of crazy times that the king that they worship is far greater than any earthly ruler this world will ever see. It is never all lost if you belong to Jesus. And so I'm going to close with this. If you don't belong to Jesus, then you can't have the hope I'm talking about today. Jesus is going to crush the nations opposed to him. That's the rock coming down and crushing the statue. All these people and nations that think, or or kings or rulers that think that they don't need God, that they're better than God, that they're higher than God, that they're above God. God's patient, gives them chances to repent. He sends his messengers, he sends his prophets, he sends people to proclaim the good news. But if at the end of the day they reject him, then the rock that comes down will be a rock of stumbling, a rock of offense. Jesus Christ, right? We know he's the cornerstone. He's the rock of ages. And he will either be somebody you can build your life on or he will be be somebody that will one day crush you because you denied him and rejected him and thought that you can predict the future and make your own way and your own path when you're really just his creature. He's the creator. We're his creatures. He's a benevolent creator who loves his creatures. But if his creatures deny him and reject him and sin and call evil good and good evil and turn their backs and refuse to repent of their ways and trust him and believe in him, then he has no choice but to judge them for their lives. Some of you today, if Jesus came back in this moment, It would not be a day of glory and rejoicing and joy in your life. It would actually be a day of judgment. And the only way to not be judged when that stone cut not by by human hands comes and, and lands upon this world and turns into a mountain, the only way to not be judged, the only way to have hope and life is to believe in the King of Kings the one who has a throne that will never end, the one who rules over a kingdom that will last forever. His name is Jesus Christ. Do you know him this morning? Do you know Jesus this morning? I'm gonna invite you right now to trust in Jesus, to actually say in your heart and in your life, God, I'm done doing it my way. I'm gonna believe you and trust you and do it your way. And if that's you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray right now Let's go ahead and close our eyes. Let's bow our heads. And if that's you and you feel like, you know what, today is a day I, I need to do this. I've been putting it off. I need to do this. We're not looking right now, but I want to see you because I want to pray for you. Lift your hand up for me right now. If that's you, lift your hand up for me right now. Thank you. I see you guys. Keep your hand high. I'm going to pray for you. Keep your hand up high. Pray this prayer with me. Father God, thank you for making me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending your son for me. I confess my sins to you. I'm lost. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. Today, I bow my knee to King 
Jesus. Holy Spirit, fill me, transform me from the inside out, and empower me today to live for you, a new life for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you guys prayed today, we'd love for you to talk to us after the service. We want to pray with you. We want to follow up with you. I hope you know that uh, we love you here at this church, and we want to help you with whatever you're going through. Uh, That's all we have for you guys today. We didn't close with the song because, like I said, this was 49 verses. So, God bless you guys. Have an amazing Sunday. We're here for prayer if you guys need it. God bless. We will see you guys next week.